Good morning, everyone. My name is Kevin Lagore. I'm the product specialist here at Skywatcher here in North America. And welcome to another episode of the What's Up webcast. And uh, if you're just joining us for the first time, the What's Up webcast is something we do every Friday, most Fridays, unless it's like a holiday or something like that. Uh, pretty much every Friday, 10 a.m. Pacific time. It's an hour long. And we try to cover different topics of astronomy. And the goal of this is really to be educational on all aspects. So every week we choose a different topic um, that's related to telescope equipment or observing or astrophotography or pretty much whatever we feel like talking about. And we try to share it with you because we're all still kind of stuck at home right now. Um, but even after things return to normal, I think we're going to keep this going. Um, so it's like our 24th. First 22nd episode already so uh, for those of you who have been with us that entire time or just joining us thank you very much um, if you do like this channel and um, all the information that we uh, post on this you can always subscribe to it it just makes this channel stronger um, and also you'll get alerts on all the coming videos and future webcasts that we're going to be doing um, and then if you have any questions or if there's a topic you'd like us to look into, you can always email us at support at skywatcherusa.com and title your email, what's up, and then tell us what you think. Um, so today we're going to be talking about a topic I think everybody can relate to, and that of course is observing from home. You know, a lot of times I feel many of us can be in this same boat. We all want to observe from skies that look like this. Uh, this is the south rim of the Grand Canyon. Uh, it's amazingly dark, 7,000 feet, pristine skies. That's what every, um, all of us want this. But unfortunately, most of us get this. So... We're getting out to a dark sky can be difficult. Um, it usually requires some planning. You're probably going to be away from home. Um, if you have kids like I do, that can be relatively difficult. Um, but there's a lot of challenges with life and stuff like that that can prevent us from getting out to those dark locations and really seeing the sky at its best. So observing from home, of course, is going to be the main thing that were our main viewing location and i have a lot of people who call in and you know i, I do outreach with people and I've, I've been doing astronomy for over 20 years i've talked to a lot of people and a lot of the time what generally comes up is i'll ask people hey you know what have you been viewing or what have you been doing whatever um, and a lot of times what generally comes up is, oh, I haven't been doing a lot of viewing or observing because the skies haven't been that good. Now, that's understandable if the weather in your location isn't great or the whole world's on fire like right now um, and the sky is filled with smoke, um, especially out here in the West. And I know there's comments that have already said that. Yes, that's a problem. Things that are out of your control yeah, you're not going to be able to go viewing. But um, when the skies are clear, uh, what I find happens a lot is you get an excuse from people saying, oh, I haven't been able to view. Uh, there's just It's just too bright. 
or there's too much light pollution, or the skies just aren't dark enough for my location, I can't see anything. Well, those are kind of excuses to block you from taking advantage of observing from home. So today's topic is kind of to break through that barrier and hopefully to encourage more people to to see what the advantages of viewing from home are going to be. So we're going to kind of go over that. Now, I was going to try to cover viewing uh, or observing and imaging in this, but as I was putting it together, I found I was just running out of space. So I think what we're going to do today is going to be all about just visual observing. I'll probably make some comments about imaging, but we're probably going to have to do a whole topic about imaging from home as well. So um, that's kind of how today is going to play out. So here are the major points of what we're going to cover in today's uh, conversation. So first is understand your location. Uh, second is adapting your observing. Third is what to view. And fourth is visual aids. So these are the four fundamental keys we're going to cover today um, in this, in this uh, topic. And hopefully at the end of this, this will help somebody to you know, maybe appreciate viewing from home a little bit more. Or for some of you who've been doing this for a while, this is probably a review. Um, but these are recorded, even though we are live right now. Uh, so if, if someone is just getting started, you know, this is really to encourage more people to get out and start viewing. So the first part is understand your location. Now, that could mean a lot of different things. So let's kind of break that down a bit. So the first thing that everyone just has to come to terms with is your sky is just never going to be a dark sky site unless you're really lucky. And I have some friends who just happen to live in some small towns. The city lights aren't that big of a problem. Um, they complain that it's not dark enough, but it's a heck of a lot better than the majority of us. You know, they can still see the Milky Way from their yard. Um, for most of us, I think we're pretty lucky to get a handful of the constellations in a good evening. But just know and come to terms that um, you're never probably, it's never, observing from home is usually far from optimal. Uh, the skies aren't that great. Um, there's generally a lot of trees. Your neighbor might have a light on, you know, there's a, thousand different reasons that observing from home is not ideal but this is where we live and this is the cards that we have dealt so we need to do the best we can to utilize what we have and get out and start enjoying the hobby that we enjoy and not finding reasons to not go out so the first thing i tell a lot of people is find the darkest spot in your location now you know, that could be your front yard, that could be a backyard, it could be a garden. Um, when I lived in California, I was in an apartment. You know, maybe you're just going to be observing on a balcony. I don't know. Um, but try to find, if you can, the darkest location on your property. Um, and try to get away um, from the streetlight glare if you can. Um, if you can't, it's just part of the deal. You just got to work with what you've got. But if you can, if you've got a... If, like my backyard, I've got street lights in the front. 
Um, but if I set up behind my house in a certain spot, then it gets rid of that glare. So that kind of works out for me. But if you can find a location that's kind of free from ex, uh, extra glare from street lights or neighbor lights um, and still has a clear view of the sky, maybe that's going to be your observing location and that's where you're going to set up. So that would be the first thing I would take a look at when viewing from home. Um, second is try to look at the positives of your location you know what's what is good about it you know we can obviously say oh well it's not dark i can't see all these things i can't see the galaxies blah 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 there's a million different reasons you can encourage yourself not to go out from your location and i've heard a lot of it and the sad part about this is there's so many people who really want to enjoy the hobby and they have some nice equipment and they're really good at it but what I find a lot of the times is people can discourage themselves from getting out because of reasons A, B, C, D, you know, whatever. And they end up just not going out at all. And that's kind of unfortunate. So I don't like seeing people burn out or not going out because they find these reasons of it's not worth it. And that's, that's not fun. And at that point, you're just kind of wasting your money and you're not enjoying the hobby. We want to get away from that. So rather than saying all the reasons you can't go out, what are the reasons you can go out? Um, you know, may, there's different things you can do from home and that's, you know, what we're gonna do. Like the planets are really kind of neat, the moon. There's all kinds of objects you can still see from home. You can really hone your skill as an observer when you practice from home. Viewing from home is a great way for you to screw up and learn about things and adapt and refine what you're doing at home is where you want to make all the mistakes so when you finally go out to a dark sky site you're ready to go your 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 skills are sharp and your your viewing experiences everything that you've learned at home you've practiced and practiced and now you're ready to go take advantage of those dark skies and not basically waste your time um Light polluted skies is gonna be better than nothing. Uh, again, you wanted to get into this hobby. I assume you're interested in space and you wanna explore it. Well, this is what we have to work with. So try to find a good reason to go out and view. I understand you're not gonna see that, you know, super sexy, you know, 15th magnitude uh, planetary nebula or galaxy cluster in Virgo or something like that, but you know there's a time and a place for that but you can still observe some of the faint stuff um there's still things you can get from home and there's a lot of other cool objects that you can still see from light polluted skies and that's what we're actually going to talk about and like i said earlier at home is the best place to practice your observing it's the best place to test out equipment i cannot tell you as someone who does this professionally how many times we've gone to a major star party and people show up and this is the first time they're using their equipment they get frustrated they get upset and all because they did not take the time to learn and mess up and adapt to their new equipment and learn their equipment before going out because if you take new equipment out odds are something's gonna happen you don't know it and you end up wasting a whole evening under a beautiful dark sky. So if you get a telescope, take it in your backyard. Try it out. 
learn it. I understand the skies aren't that great, but they're good enough for you to get going and good enough for you to learn your equipment and start using it. So when you do get out to dark skies, you're not fumbling around in the dark frustrated. Um, at home, and this applies to imaging especially, do not bring new equipment you have never used to a dark sky site. You will waste your whole weekend and leave frustrated. Open it up, try it at home, get to know it, make sure the make sure it works, make sure the drivers are installed, um, all these things. Do it at home, mess up in the backyard, and then once you've got your flow, then you're going to be ready to go for a dark sky location and you're going to enjoy it a lot more and you're not going to be wasting your time and regretting that you spent all this time driving out there. So observing from home is very important um, for that. Now, this next section is going to be kind of it's smaller, but uh, you can adapt your observing style for your location. Um, obviously it's not going to be, um, a dark sky. That's just the, it sucks. I wish we were all under the Milky Way and it's big and bright and you can see the Horsehead Nebula naked eye. Not possible. Um, all that crazy kind of stuff that you see in like nightscape photography photos that, you know, kind of look like a trip, um, or one of those weird folders that you used to have in the 90s that had like white tigers and 14 planets floating up there. I wish everyone could observe from a location like that, but we can't. So adapting to your location can make sure you're getting benefits from it. So obviously the one big thing is bigger scopes are not always gonna be needed from these locations. However, they can still be useful Having that big aperture 20 inch daub, you know, I have a lot of people that are like, ah, oh, I'm not gonna bring it out, it's too much work. Yeah, I've had a 20 inch, they are a lot of work. But there's some cool things that you can do with a big scope, even from a light polluted sky. Um, I have a 14 inch that lives in the backyard a lot of times and it gets used all the time. So aperture can still be your friend in a light polluted location. It's still gonna give you that punch into the nighttime sky that you wanna see allowing you to still catch some of those faint little photons that maybe the small scopes can't. And on the planets and the moon, that aperture really starts to allow you to resolve details and stuff like that. I will uh, preface it that though, that it depends on your seeing conditions. Um, certain locations are going to have some more stable skies. Um, if you live near the ocean, you know, your skies are probably more stable for viewing planets and the moon at high power. Um, where out here in the desert, um, it's more arid and seeing for planets isn't always that great. But for deep sky, we got good transparency. So you can still use that aperture from home. Um, I understand some scopes are going to be a lot of work. Maybe you don't want to, you know, you don't want to set that up. Maybe you don't want to set up a 30 inch daub in the backyard. I get it. I'd still do it. Uh, you paid for it, didn't you? So uh, set it up, leave it out there, get a cover, wrap it up. Um, you know, don't let it get ruined or anything, but use your stuff, what you paid for. Uh, understanding your seeing conditions. This is a really important one that you can actually learn from home. Actually, I think it's best learn from home. Um, I have a lot of people who get started who ask, 
how can I get my telescope to be 500x? And that's what it says that the the uh, maximum magnification, the theoretical maximum magnification says I can get like 500 power on it. Well, when you start observing, you're going to start to learn that there are caveats to that. And yes, theoretically, a lot of scopes can get like this crazy amount of magnification. But your, your seeing conditions or the stability of the sky, not how dark it is, the actual stability of it is what's going to warrant how much your telescope is going to be able to do that night. So some nights you're going to find, oh, I can only do 100 power. And other nights you're going to be probably pushing your telescope, on rare nights, you're going to be pushing your telescopes to extremes and get some crazy things that you never thought you could see. Um, on average, I think most people can do about 150 to 200x in their backyard. That's great for planets in the moon. Um, on the rarest of occasions, um, I remember one night with my 16-inch daub, I was able to push, oh my goodness, I think it was a thousand power on uh, Neptune. Maybe it was Uranus. I was able to, I was able to see um, one of the faint moons of those planets. Um, Triton is actually what we're so that would be Neptune. So I was able. I, uh, I'm getting a whole head of myself. I was able to see the uh, moon Triton around Neptune from the backyard uh, using a 16 inch with a lot of magnification, and it just that was one of those rare nights where everything fell into place. So. Seeing conditions are going to be the biggest variables of viewing. And you're going to find out that some nights are going to be great, some nights are going to be garbage, and most nights are going to be okay. So understanding your location and adapting to that and knowing your seeing conditions will let you know, hey, my site's really good for planets or my site's really good for the moon and blah, blah, blah. And maybe you could adapt to those particular things. One thing, a friend of mine just brought this up the other day. I always forget about sketching. Um, I've never been into sketching. There's some people, and sketching has kind of been completely overshadowed by imaging. Everybody wants to take their images. They want to go out and show it on Facebook and all that fun stuff. But sketching, sketching is a really interesting approach because you're able to share an image but what you find about sketching is that you start to pay attention to the details of what you're looking at. And I find that a lot of people who do sketching are really good observers. They've got a really good eye for detail. They're looking for very specific things, subtle changes in the object and subtle, you know, details that might be there. And it takes a careful eye to see some of that. So sketching is something that I think more people should do. I myself should probably give it a try where you just sit down and you actually view it. That's a, the cool thing about sketching is you can kind of the world kind of stops. You just sit there, you can relax, you can take the evening in, you can feel that the air is cool and everything is quiet and you can just focus on that target and see what you want to see and just kind of let the whole experience of viewing kind of encompass what you are. Um, it becomes quite a moment when you just kind of let it all go. So sketching can be a really good way 
to hone in your observing skills because it forces you to really pay attention to the details and really let your eye and your observing skills take over. And I think you'll find as you start sketching more and you start paying attention to details and adapting how you view, um, you become very, very good at uh, viewing. Um, it takes practice. Um, I am not an artist whatsoever, but like anything else in a hobby or anything else in life, it's going to take time to practice. And that's sketching is a really good way to do that. So obviously certain telescopes are going to be better. Um, I see some comments where uh, sketching on a large job when you're up on like a 14 foot ladder, not generally advisable. So you got to, you know, you work with what you got. Uh, practicing new techniques, um, understanding how to view objects is uh, a very cool uh, thing to do when you're at home. Um, you can try, um, I forgot the name of it. Uh, oh my gosh, I forgot the name of this. So when you don't view at an object direct, at, you're using your peripheral vision to actually see it. Um, I've completely lost my train of thought on there. Um, but you can adapt different viewing techniques. One, for example, and this one is kind of something that people don't think about. I have a good friend of mine who really inspired this whole topic today. He lives about a mile from LAX airport in Los Angeles, California. Averted vision. Yes, thank you very much. Um, practice averted vision. Um, so anyway, back to... I have a friend of mine. He inspired this entire uh, talk this morning. He lives about a mile or less from LAX airport in Los Angeles, California. I've observed with him. His backyard sky is orange from all the sky is literally orange from all the lights lighting up the runway. You can see the tails of the large aircraft as they take off and land and you can feel the ground move when you're in his backyard. It is by any stretch of the imagination, a horrible place to view. But is it? Because he is one of the finest observers I actually know. Um, he's taken a lot of the practices we're talking about here and he's adapted his craft to understanding, okay, I can't view galaxies, but I could view double stars. I could view carbon stars. I could view planets. I can view the moon. Um, He's adapted his skill set to those particular objects. So that's what we're going to talk about next. Um, he understands he's not going to be able to view galaxies from his location. It's just not going to happen. But he's not going to let that stop him from enjoying the hobby that he loves and enjoys. So he's out multiple times a week. Um, and he's an incredible observer. And that's because he's out there practicing and really training his eye. And then when he goes out to a dark sky location, he knows what he's looking for. He's got the eye. Um, and that's just because he's practiced. It's kind of like a guitarist saying, oh, I'm not really going to play my guitar only if I'm doing it at a concert. Well, you don't want to just play at a concert. You need to practice at home and mess up and do all that. So hone your observing skills. Uh, try averted vision if you're looking at faint stuff where you're not looking direct at it. Um, one thing uh, this friend of mine uh, actually recommends if you're doing planets is uh, actually observe with the lights on. Do not dark adapt your eye. And we'll talk about that in a minute as another technique. So 
Um, so we'll jump into that right now. That segues us really good into this. So what to view when you're at home? Obviously, we're kind of limited on what things we can see. Um, I wouldn't say limited. You just have to change up the game a little bit. So when we're at home, obviously, we're not going to be going after 16th magnitude galaxies. Sorry. Um, but rather than worry about what I can't see, let's uh, focus on what we can see. Of course, the first one, the easiest one, is the moon. The moon is something that I find is vastly overlooked. Uh, I myself throw myself in that category. I, you know, always wait for the moon to get out of the way. Um, if you guys were here several weeks ago, we had my, our friend Robert Reeves on. Robert is a master of the moon. Uh, the moon is a microcosm in itself. There is so many details that you can see in the moon. Thousands of craters. Um, there's lava domes, there's rills, there's, you know, little canyon and river-like details in there. Um, it's not just a big bright ball in the sky that's got some holes in it. Um, it's a very dynamic landscape, and I find that a lot of people look over it, and like I said, myself included. But this is, obviously, it's unaffected by light pollution completely. You can observe this from the middle of, you know, downtown um, New York. It's there. It's always there. And what's nice is it's relatable, too. So if you have people who are new to the hobby, um, say, let's go look at the moon, they know what that is. They can get excited about it without much uh, emphasis on it. But the moon has incredible detail. There are atlases on the moon that can, just like, you know, the Messier and the NGC catalogs, there are catalogs of different small details you can see on the moon. And if you take a, a nice size telescope, go out there and check it out. Uh, even large telescopes, you'll be rather impressed what you can see when you throw a, a large, you know, refractor or a large Cassegrain or a large Dobsonian, something with some serious aperture you would be amazed what details and quite challenging details you can see. Um, I know observing some of like the lava domes that are on the moon, some of those can be quite challenging. Um, resolving the smallest craters you can on the moon is something that you can challenge yourself. So if you're looking for a challenge, the moon is something to not overlook. Um, it's not just a big, bright, annoying white golf ball in the sky. It's, it is its own Thing. It's got its own set of challenges and methods of observing um, that you can adapt to really honing in your eye for what to look for. Um, so that's that's a cool one. Um, and like I said, it's a great, uh, great target to get friends and family um, involved too because it's relatable. You don't have to explain it very much. It's just, it's the moon. Um, so the moon is a great um, object to take a look at. And it's kind of the default um, when looking at home um of course the the next one that we all know is the planets and the planets are another fun set and they're a challenge in their own right um the nice thing about some of the planets is they're constantly changing um and there is different aspects of the planets that can be if you're looking for an observing challenge there are different aspects of the planets um to to take into mind um, of course, unlike the moon, planets can be kind of seasonal where they're really convenient. Like right now, uh, we're recording this in September of 2020. Uh, we've got 
right now after the sun goes down you've got jupiter and saturn nice and high ready to go and then mars is following not far after venus is up in the early morning so there are things to see you just might have to change uh, between viewing at night to viewing during um the early morning hours if you really want to challenge try observing some of the planets during the day um that's another thing you could do from home but here's some things that you could do with the planets. You could observe Jupiter's moons and cloud bands. Um, if you have kids, if you want to get them involved, you can go out when Jupiter's up and have them actually sketch the positions of the moons night after night and watch them change. Um, Jupiter's got amazingly dynamic cloud bands on there. And when you get up to high power, high magnification on your telescope, you can start to see all these little uh, nodules and other loops of detail in the in there especially when the red spots out so jupiter is really cool you can also watch transits going across the planet's disk um, that's uh, jupiter is a very dynamic planet to view and it spins every 10 hours it rotates so details will change on the planet very very quickly um, details in the rings of saturn um, there are some very faint details, like spokes um, are very, very difficult to see. That's a detail in Saturn's rings. Some of the other divisions in Saturn's rings are difficult to see. Um, and then the cloud bands in the, the actual planet itself. Um, those are some fun details to see. Um, Mars, of course, is one of the most dynamic planets um, with its dust storms and other details, especially this year in October it's going to get a close approach um there's all kinds of details you can see on mars too and when you pump some aperture on the planets it'd be amazing what you can actually see on there and then of course uh you all we still have uranus and neptune um those are going to be more difficult to really see any details on the planets um but the moons around the planets are something that would be more of the challenge if you're looking for um is how many moons you can see around those faint faraway worlds um, and then of course the closest ones were mercury and venus where you can actually watch the changing of the phases uh happen it's really cool to see venus when it's like a razor thin crescent um or observe venus during the day uh, i know when we're doing outreach events uh and we're observing the sun in the during the day um, i will generally have a telescope aimed at venus um, as well and it it really catches people's attention when they can see a planet in the middle of the day it's kind of like whoa that's cool but the planets are are very cool to see they're not affected by light pollution which is a benefit and uh, they do require good seeing you'll be impressed with even a small you know cheap little dobsonian telescope or a little refractor will pull some nice detail off the planets but if you've got a big telescope and it's just sitting there collecting dust because you're not able to go to a dark sky site watching the planets is you'd be impressed what you can get out of it so use that stuff dust it off don't let it sit in the garage uh like i was saying earlier uh my friend who lives near lax he actually observes planets with the lights on he's not dark adapted at all um he actually encourages you to uh, not dark adapt when viewing the planets so normally in astronomy we want our eyes to be dark adapted we want our pupils to be as wide open as possible to see that faint thing uh, with the planets however what you'll find is if you are dark adapted and your pupils are wider open 
you're actually taking in a lot more light, but you're actually oversaturating the eye. So if you observe with the lights on around you, obviously you don't want a ton of glare. You can always shield your eyes from the glare and the telescope from the glare. But the important thing is not having your eyes completely dark adapted down so they're not being oversaturated by the bright light from the planet and the telescope. Um, so you actually might find that you can see more details on the planets when you're not fully dark adapted and having to switch between a bright object and your eyes being wide open. So if you never give your eyes the chance to, to, re, to open up for the night, um, it can actually be beneficial when observing the planet so you're not um, oversaturating your eye. So that's kind of an interesting technique when observing planets is to actually observe with maybe your backyard lights on um, and never giving your chance to sell your eyes to dark adapt. Again, with planets, they're great to share um, with people and friends and family. You can, they take very little to discuss and get people excited about. You know, if it's like, hey, you want to see a galaxy? Takes a little bit of like, oh, it's that little faint, fuzzy, blah, blah, blah. Um, that's not as exciting. Where the planets are, that's Jupiter. Everybody knows what that is. So that's something to take a look at. Uh, Actually, Cameron in the chat actually makes a good uh, point. Um, observing in twilight is an excellent time to view planets. Um, I actually think it's the best time to view planets is in twilight. Um, you can get some really cool details out of that too. So thanks, uh, Cameron, for mentioning that. Um, and then one thing that's actually really cool with the planets, we did this a couple years ago. Um, we did a big shootout with some friends of mine. We brought all kinds of refractors out. We put all the same magnifications on and we pointed them all to the same planet. You can go right down the row and see the differences between each telescope. So doing telescope comparisons on the planets and some bright objects are kind of fun. You can learn the differences of, you know, what a nice... APO refractor is going to do versus what a Newtonian of a similar aperture is going to do. And you can actually start to see the subtle differences between each optical system and what it's going to give you. So that's kind of a cool thing you can do from home as well. So other than the planets moving down the list, the next thing is binary stars. Uh, binaries are, I will admit, I'm not a big binary person, uh, binary stars person um i really just haven't taken the time to get um into them but binary stars can be a very challenging set of objects that i feel are often overlooked um you're basically looking at uh, stellar systems that have very close proximity to one another and this can be a really ch big challenge for your observing skills and pushing your telescope to the limit and your seeing conditions because some of the double stars or binary star systems that are up there are really difficult to see and split. And uh, one of them that's really just obvious, two of them that come up to mind are Sirius in the winter sky, seeing uh, Sirius B, the companion star, the bright star Sirius, is a bit of a challenge actually and uh antares splitting antares can also be difficult as well two very well known bright stars but they can offer a bit of a challenge um and there are other other stars up there uh, i know up near vega i believe that's what i have here on the screen is the double double it's two binary star systems next to each other 
that's uh, kind of a cool thing to check out as well. So um, the easiest one of those is Mizar and Alcor up in the Big Dipper, uh, or some major if we're going to be astronomically correct. Um, those are easy ones, but then you can really get down to some really challenging stuff um, with binary stars. Um, and this is also a cool way to hunt down new, uh, if you're into hunting down a list, um, hunting down binary systems can be kind of fun. It's a way of expanding your knowledge of the nighttime sky and become very skilled in a particular type of viewing. Um, but binary stars can be quite a challenge um, to see depending on which ones you're going after. Some of them are just beautiful like Albireo, which is an optical binary. Um, you've got a blue and a gold star, which can be very stunning. So you've got some cool ones that are just, you know, they're colorful. So some people actually spend time going after colorful double star systems where others are going on how small of a split you can go for and how far down you can push your telescope and see how, how small you can get those stars split. So binary stars are an excellent one to do from home because you're generally just looking at a star system. Most of those are easy to grab from a relatively, you know, light polluted location. Uh, my particular favorite when it comes to stars are carbon stars. Um, if you're not really aware of what a carbon star is, a carbon star is a star that's kind of at the edge of its life. It's now converting um, everything to carbon. And when that happens, it gives off a very uh, deep red appearance to the star um, these can be variables as well so the variation in color shading can happen um, what the image we have up here this is t lira um, which is not far from vega um, one of the deepest red carbon stars in the nighttime sky um, these are a really unique collection of stars um, there's a there's several lists of them up there and they're all throughout the year so if you're looking for an observing challenge to take you throughout the entire year carbon stars are really cool and that some of them are you know kind of more of a rusty light orange tone excuse me um where other ones like t lira and there's a handful of others can be very red like ruby red um, and they're very cool to see so that's something you can actually do in a modest sized telescope you know, anything you can get off the shelf nowadays would be uh, a really good uh, telescope for hunting down carbon stars. Um, and you can also try, if you really want to add a challenge, you can try to hunt them down manually using star hopping techniques. And learning how to star hop from home with basic constellations can get you um, a lot more... Um, well suited for when you're in a dark sky site and you can start star hopping even further. Um, and like I said, it can be done year round. Um, so that is the uh, carbon stars. Carbon stars are, uh, they don't really come up too much um, for the beginners, which is unfortunate because they're very striking. Um, if you can get, you show someone a red star, like a deep red star, they're like T Lira, as you see here on the screen, um, they, they can be very impressed by something like that. So if you're a beginner and you want to try something that I find a lot of the atlases and stuff kind of overshadow, um, carbon stars are very, very cool. So give that give that one a try. Check them out. There's some good lists um, out there. 
All right, so carbon stars. Um, last one, of course, is deep sky um, targets. So just because we're in a light polluted location doesn't mean we can't view our favorite targets. Uh, they're obviously not gonna look like they do from a dark sky location and you're gonna be limited by your location. Some locations that are really, really deep in light pollution, you're probably not gonna get much at all. So maybe it's a lost cause in that. But I find most backyards are dark enough to where you can get, you can still get some views um, of some of the brighter deep sky objects. Uh, the Messier catalog is a, a good collection to start with, which was funny because last week's topic was everything but the Messier catalog, but that's if we had access to really nice skies. Um, but there's a large collection of objects in the Messiers that you can still see from home. And the Messiers still have star clusters, brighter nebulas, and brighter galaxies that can still be glimpsed from home. And just to name off like half a dozen, um, these are some that are easy to see from a, a decent backyard, like an average backyard. You could still see um, much of these objects. And there's, I don't have enough space to obviously put all of them out there, but you know, M104, the Sombrero Galaxy, that's easy to see from a light polluted location in like a six or eight inch telescope. Um, that's best visible in the spring at the moment. Um, of course, right now we, we have summer, um, so the Ring Nebula is an easy one to get in a six inch telescope. You could probably do it in a four inch telescope as well. Um, put a little magnification on there, but the Ring Nebula is still doable. So is the Dumbbell Nebula. Those two are very uh, popular right now this time of year, and you can still see, you know, moderately, you can still see them. And of course, as we move into autumn and in the winter, you know, M45, the Pleiades is just a, that's a beautiful cluster, whether you're in town or in a dark sky, it has its own life um, and look to it, depending on how dark the skies are. Um, so those open clusters are up there as well. Um, globular clusters like M13, um, like I said, I kind of ran out of space um, up here, but uh, globular clusters, especially the Messier globular clusters, are excellent to see up in the nighttime sky. Um, right now, we still have M13. Um, M92 up in Hercules is often overlooked. It's a little more dense and small, um, but that's a cool one up in Hercules. M13 is a real popular one, being the biggest. Um, M22 down in Sagittarius, um, and plenty of the other ones um, up there. But globulars are really good to do from town because they're generally easy to see. Um, of course, as we move into autumn, uh, we have uh, the very well-known M31 Andromeda Galaxy is coming up. It's going to still look like a smudge, but you can still, that can, observing Andromeda can kind of get you on the path of what galaxies are generally going to look like from a light polluted location. So um, M31 is a fun one that you can see. And then, of course, everyone's favorite is the Orion Nebula, which is the easiest nebula to see from a light-polluted location. Um, even in a basic backyard, you can get a nice view of M42, um, which is the Orion Nebula. So the Messier catalog has a lot of great objects to see, even in a light-polluted location. So don't write off deep sky completely. You're just going to be a little bit more limited, and it might be a little bit more challenging to pull out certain details. 
Of course, beyond that, you have the NGC catalog. And the NGC has a much larger collection. It covers all the Messiers as well, but it, it still has a collection of stuff that you can still see. Some of the brighter star clusters, nebula and galaxies in there. Um, and just to rattle off a few, um, a really cool one that I like, it often gets overlooked, is NGC 2169. It's up in the uh, constellation of Orion, the upper arm. It's also called the 37 cluster because it looks like the number 37. You can see in the stars, 3 seven that's a really fun one to look at i use that a lot in outreach events because it does look like the number 37 so it's kind of a fun one to share with people but that one's really easy to see um, especially if you've got like an eight or ten inch telescope it starts to pull out some of the fainter stars that make the the numerals look a little bit easier um, of course right now um, as uh, cassiopeia and peg or perseus start to rise uh, we have the double cluster uh, NGC 869 and 884. That's a great one that's coming up right now. Um, the ET cluster, which is also up in Cassiopeia, also known as the Owl. That's a good one um, to check out right now. Um, and then some of the, uh, there's a variety of other things out there. Um, and then a lot of the globular clusters, as we said earlier, um, in the spring, if you have a low enough horizon line, um, you can get Omega Centauri, which is NGC 5139. Um, I can just glimpse that from my backyard. It's not very high. It's in the worst part of the sky, too. Um, it's buried in light pollution, but you can still see it, um, which is awesome. So globular clusters are a fun one to see. Um, and then I just needed a nebula for this, but NGC 6960, which is the uh, Western Veil Nebula, that actually with the right equipment can be seen in a light polluted location uh not heavily light polluted kind of your general backyard but you can see it with the right equipment and that actually segues us to the last little bit of uh the, today's topic which is visual aids things that you can actually use to maybe assist a little bit when you're in a light polluted location so first off all kinds of accessories can be helpful um, to viewing. Now, the first one that comes to mind is a dew shield. Um, if you have a like one of our Mac Cassegrains or you know like a Schmidt Cassegrain, um, a dew shield is very well needed. Um, if you've got a refractor, a refractor is already going to have it, and if you have a daub, it's kind of all part of the setup at that point. But a dew shield, particularly if you have Cassegrains. Uh, will reduce glare off the corrector plates um, and allow you to get a little bit more contrast out of your system. So a dew shield is a must, um, if you're, especially if you're observing in light pollution. It's not just there to keep dew off the glass, it's there to keep glare off the glass as well. Now, the, the biggest thing that most people think you're going to need when you're in a light blue location is filters. Um, I love filters. They're a lot of fun to play with. Um, so there's a variety of filters that you should probably have in your collection. We did a whole uh, topic on uh, visual filters a couple months ago. You can go back and check that out. Um, we're probably going to do a topic in the new year that's going to discuss what filters to use for what objects um, to kind of pairing them up. So that'll be in the new year. We'll cover that topic. Uh, but the first ones are light pollution filters. Those are usually called light uh light pollution suppression filters or LPS or CLS filters. Um, every company's got their own name for it. 
So it just depends on what you want. But a good light pollution filter um, is nice to have. Uh, that can kind of help pop out some details a little bit. Maybe maybe reduce the background glare and help you see a little bit more in galaxies from a light polluted location. Galaxies really just need dark skies. Um, these can also be helpful with nebulas. Of course, if nebulas are your thing, then uh, the broadband filters, like a UHC filter, is like a must um, to have in the case. That'll really help pull out some of the, the fainter nebulas and expand what you can see, especially in town. So like a UHC or ultra-high contrast filter is a very good tool to have. And then if you're really getting serious, then you've got the narrowband filters, the O3 or oxygen 3, and then the H beta filters. Uh, the O3 is probably going to be really important. That works really well on a lot of emission nebulas. So if you're trying to see the ring nebula or the lagoon or the trifid or the veil nebula, NGC 6960 and 6992, um, which we talked about in the last NGC stuff, um, an O3 filter will be very beneficial for cutting out that light pollution because it is a narrow band filter. It's only letting a certain wavelength of light through and it's cutting everything else out. So an O3 filter is well worth it along with the UHC filter. I think if, if you have to have uh, some filters, a UHC and an O3 are two filters you should always have um, for when you're doing deep sky. Uh, the H-beta filter, that's really the horsehead filter. That's what it's known for. It does a lot of really cool things to other nebulas. Orion looks really neat in H-beta. Um, other nebulas like the California uh, nebula and stuff like that, an H-beta filter can come out for that as well. But H-beta would be the last one I would add. Um, it's not going to get used as much, but it can add some pretty interesting details in there. Um I'm going to get to some questions in just a minute. So uh, we're on the last little bit here. Um, one of the big things that I tell people is observing chairs. Um, observing chairs are really nice if if you have a telescope that is short enough to view with a chair. Obviously, it's a big daub, then that's not going to happen. But a chair can be very helpful. I find when you're relaxed and you're... If you're relaxed, you're going to spend more time viewing. You're going to be more comfortable. And it allows you to start to really focus on viewing rather than like holding a ladder or something like that. So a nice chair is very helpful to um, get you viewing um, a little bit more and allows you to focus more on, on that. So that's pretty much it for uh, the topic this week. So I appreciate everybody uh, tuning in. Um, so if you have questions now, I will go back and uh, check those out. So the first question is from Cameron. Um, question is O3 or UHC? If only one, what would you recommend? Um, if you only had to pick one filter, uh, the broadband UHC would be the best one to go with, I think. Uh, those are more flexible over a wider range of objects. Uh, the UHC is really... The ultra high contrast filters, I think, are the the one that you should always start with. It does it covers the O3 uh, wavelengths, so it's getting everything an O3 filter is going to show. Um, it also allows H beta to come through, so any object with H beta, you're going to be able to see that. So it'll work on a really large collection of 
objects out there. So I would start with a UHC and then add an O3. And O3 is a little bit more specific um, for certain types of objects to see. And there's plenty of uh, manufacturers out there for these filters. Um, Astronomic are the filters that I have at the moment. Um, no particular reason. It just, that's what I ended up getting. Um, but Astronomic, uh, let me rattle off some. Astronomic, Thousand Oaks, uh, Optolong, Lumicon, um, Celestron has their own set of filters, Botter, um, all those companies make fantastic filters. I probably left some out, but those companies make fantastic filters for visual. Teleview has a good set of filters um, as well, not to leave them out. So, you know, pretty much anything on the market uh, for visual filters works relatively well. So just kind of pick who you want to work with and grab it. But um, yeah, so a nice set of filters is very helpful, um, especially if you have a telescope that's maybe six inches in aperture, 150 millimeter in aperture or bigger. Um, those filters are really going to be helpful um, and you're going to notice more um, with filters the bigger you go. So um, if you have a four inch telescope right now and you have a filter and you can see some details, but you're thinking about upgrading, um, when you start to get to a six or even a 10 inch, uh, I find when you get to about eight inch filters become very nice to have because there's just more light going through it. But when you get to some big telescopes, those filters become really helpful like 12 inch and larger um, filters can be really useful so that's uh that's where i'm at with that so of course if you're observing with the planets um you could use color filters to bring out certain details again we covered all this in our visual filter uh webcast you can go back and watch that episode if you want um but Using other filters like color filters for planets or neutral densities or polarizers, all of those are nice to have for viewing. Eventually, you'll just have a collection of filters to use for different things. Um, but all of that can be helpful from observing from home. So with all that being said, um, go out, view from home more often. Uh, don't let the light pollution discourage you. It's always going to be there as far as society exists. Um, maybe one day we'll all get our act together and make that different. But right now it's just what we have to work with. So rather than um, saying, I'm not going to go out because the skies aren't dark enough, uh, just go out. Try to go view. Um, you know, actually go use your telescope. This is the hobby you chose. I assume you want to do it. Um, and taking the time to practice at home and mess up, that's where you want to do it. And even just sharing with your family and friends, just you from home. It's, it's not, obviously we're not going to be seeing certain things, but there's still plenty to see from a light polluted location. And it's, there's no reason you can't be out enjoying the hobby that we all love here and you know getting some use out of your stuff so anyway that's uh pretty much it for this week um next week we're talking about the Skywatcher esprit triplet series um we've been asked to do this episode for a while so we're going to take a deep dive and actually look at the entire collection um all four models we're going to talk about them in some detail 
Um, so if you have any questions about the Esprits, next week is when to tune in for that. Um, and at the end of the month, we're having our good friend Vic Maris. If you don't know who Vic is, he is the uh, owner and president of Stellar View Telescope. So we're going to sit down with Vic, um, ask him some questions. I think he's even going to take us on a little bit of a tour around Stellar View as well as from what he was saying. We'll see. Um, but Vic will be our special guest speaker for this month. And then, of course, we'll move into next month um as well and uh we've got some cool stuff coming up so thanks everybody for watching today i certainly appreciate and i know the whole Skywatcher team does as well um if you do like these videos and you want to keep up with what's coming in the future you can subscribe to the channel it'll just keep you up to date on what we're doing um and let you know on new episodes or any other stuff that we want to throw out um, if you have any questions, comments, I don't do concerns, so don't worry about that one. Um, and uh, shoot that over to support at skywatcherusa.com. Uh, title it What's Up Webcast. Um, uh, no, uh, Vic is the last uh, week, uh, last Friday of the month. Um, so not next week, uh, the week after that. So special guest speakers are always the last Friday of the month. Uh, for the webcast. So if you want to kind of know what our schedule is, um, special guests are always the, always the last Friday of the month. Um, as long as there's no holidays or anything like that on there. So anyway, thanks all for, uh, for watching. Uh, we all appreciate uh, you being there. Please stay safe. Um, hopefully the smoke goes away if you're in California out here in the West and we can get back to viewing. Um, stay healthy and of course clear skies. And uh, have a good weekend. Thanks, everybody, and take care.